Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Aren't you guys so grateful that Jeff said yes when we invited him to do this reciting of Scripture? And why don't we just acknowledge that he's used God's giftings to bless us in that way and just encourage him and... uh, and let him know that God has worked, because I think that has made the, the reading of God's word really powerful as we've gone into the series. Um, just a couple notes before I dive into the message. The prayer campaign, um, it's not just for families. I want to make sure you know it's for every individual and family in the church. And so um, please remember that singles are included in that as well. And also, for the leaders, this, this afternoon's rally, lunch is not only provided for you, but we've gotten enough food for your families as well. So no need to skip out and find food for your families. Just stick around, fellowship with people, and then come right in at 1 o'clock, and we'll make sure everybody's fed in the leaders' families. All right? Last thing I want to acknowledge is you may notice some younger faces. At Harvest, when you enter the youth group, You stay here all except the last Sunday of the month, and you sit through the adult sermon and become part of the church, and it's one of the ways we're growing in becoming a multi-generational church. New incoming seventh graders always look so fresh and young. These guys have not made a wrong turn in the hallway, but they are part of our congregation every Sunday now. So seventh graders, I want to invite you. Would you just stand up so we can see you and welcome you into the new experience? Um, should I speak in Spanish? So you understand? There you go. There you go. All right. Thank you. Sit down. For some reason, I said it in English and they just stood there. So, all right. Thank you for standing. Well, if you're new to our church, um, you should know that we've been working our way through a sermon series called The Church At. And uh, what we're looking at is seven letters that Jesus wrote to seven churches in what was Asia Minor, and today is known as modern Turkey. And these were seven churches which were really important in the kingdom of God, and seven churches who, taken together, reflected a lot of the things that happen in every church that has ever existed since then. And as Jesus writes these letters to the churches, and we're benefiting from those letters, we're eavesdropping on their mail, and we're learning a lot about God's heart for the church. Well, today we've come to the last of the seven letters, and it would be nice if we could end on a really positive note with a happy, encouraging letter, but sadly, this last letter that Jesus wrote is, in fact, the harshest rebuke of all seven letters. Only Philadelphia and Smyrna were spared any rebuke at all, but out of the seven churches, five of them heard serious criticism, serious complaints from the heart of Jesus. Uh, Just to kind of review, let's take a look quickly at what some of these churches, um, what what Jesus held against some of them. In Ephesus, you had people who loved correct belief, doctrinal purity, but they just had no love left in their hearts. In Pergamum, they lived in an immoral society, but the church had also been guilty of moral compromise. In Thyatira, Somebody told me to pronounce it that way because the other way sounded kind of weird. So in Thyatira, or Thyatira, um, they tolerated a false teacher who was leading many people astray. And finally, in Sardis, they had every appearance of being alive and successful, 
But Jesus said to them, you're actually spiritually dead. Now, these are serious church issues, and you can see why Jesus would take the time to address those issues in those churches. But it is this last church in Laodicea that receives the harshest rebuke and the strongest complaint from Jesus. And you might be surprised at what it is that has gotten him set off about this church. Because at first glance, it may seem like such a small thing, what he's accusing them of. But in fact, it is one of the most serious grievances he has. And that should tell us something about the heart of Christ for his church. So let's look at some of the characteristics of this church in Laodicea that that really caused Jesus to come against them in, in complaining. And the first thing he says about this church is that they're lukewarm. Apologies to all the, the people named Luke. Uh, it's not any reflection on you or your character. But the word lukewarm is a very, very interesting word. At first, when you hear you're neither hot nor cold, but you're lukewarm, you, you kind of feel like, so that's it? The, the harshest rebuke of Jesus is for a church that their greatest guilt is they're not really hot or really cold, but Nah, they're just going to, eh. And that's what draws the biggest complaint from Christ. But what we'll learn about Jesus is that is a, a very serious issue for him because to him, the church is not just an organization that bears his name. He calls the church his bride. So when Jesus talks about the church, he's really talking in the same spirit that a man might talk about his wife. And that's why for him, this really lukewarm, neither hot nor cold relationship is so disturbing and so troubling to his heart. If we take hot to mean spiritual passion, and by the way, you should know over history, there have been so many attempts to interpret this passage in different ways. The, The most prevalent one in history is this. If we take hot to mean spiritual passion, You're hot in your faith. And if we take cold to mean spiritual numbness, then what Jesus says is, man, I wish you were at least one or the other. Now, that sounds weird because it sounds like then, in one sense, Jesus is saying, I'd rather you be spiritually numb than sort of, eh. Well, he's not saying that he prefers people to be numb. But what he's saying is, look, on either end, if you're hot, that's good. If you're hot, you're hot. And if you're not, you're not, at least you know it. You're not deluded, and those who are cold can at least be told they're cold, they acknowledge it, and they can be warmed up. But the worst place to occupy spiritually in the the eyes of Jesus is this middle-of-the-road, lukewarm, namby-pamby, milk-toast Christianity. This thing that says, you know, I don't really want to shine too bright, I don't want to be too dark, I just sort of want to be... I want to be Christian enough. You know that phrase, that sentiment? Let's not get carried away. All right? I, I give some offering. I show up on Sundays. I haven't kicked any puppies or punched my kid in the face. And I'm trying to be a good citizen. I feel like the, the point is I'm Christian enough. And what Jesus says is that is the thing that most annoys him in the church. Because he did not hang on a cross and call together a people for, his, for himself to form the church so that we could just be eh, Christian enough. If you compare it to marriage, what he's saying is either be passionately married or don't marry at all. 
But don't persist in this numb, loveless, so-so relationship and try to call that marriage. Because that is not at all what it is. And it's better to be one or the other than to be trapped forever in this ridiculous middle of the ground, neither hot nor cold relationship, and presume that that's what God set apart for us to do. See, here's the thing. At least on the two extremes, everyone knows where they stand. But in the middle, people have some really weird ideas about the truth. They think they're getting the best of both worlds, but the truth is they're getting the worst of both worlds. Think about it this way. Let's go back to the comparison of marriage. If you're in one of these weird, numb, loveless, sort of whatever, I don't really care about it. If that's the kind of marriage you're in, then you don't have either the freedom of singleness or the passion of a real marriage. You've got this weird in-between bondage situation going on where you've got all the guilt, all the requirements, all the expectations, all the limitations, but none of the joy. And you have to ask yourself every day, what's the point of going on? Why did I ever do this in the first place? This can't be all there is. Now, Jesus isn't saying that the answer is dump the person and move on. He's saying you are in a marriage. If you settle for this, you are missing out on the incredible world of joy and fulfillment that is possible right under your nose. Many people could have more, but they settle for less because they just got used to it. If we want to describe people who are like this spiritually, there are the people who on, on, on every measure from externally would appear to be Christian people, upstanding citizens, churchgoers, maybe even leaders. And they have all the appearance of being religious, but they have not yet tapped into any of the real power of walking with Jesus Christ. Does that in any way describe your experience of being a Christian so far? I don't want to accuse anybody. It's not my place to tell you what your experience has been. But for I think a lot of people I've talked to, it's like Christianity has defined the restrictions and limits in their life, but they're waiting to experience this rich, joyful power, this life-transforming issuance of spiritual vitality that everybody else seems to be thinking they, they see. And like, when is that going to happen to me? So far, it hasn't been all that fulfilling. And so as a result, those people come to church mainly to make friends because there really doesn't seem to be anything else happening for them there except meeting some new people and getting a social circle. They're religious, but that religion has not in any way touched the very depth of who they are and tapped them into a source of real power to come alive. Peter, or, or I'm sorry, Paul, in writing to Timothy warned him of people like this, and he said they will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. In another translation, it says, having the form of godliness, but denying its power. So that's, that's one of the reasons that Jesus is troubled by the church in Laodicea, is because there is so much available, and they have taken none of what's really good. They have bound themselves to outer forms that have controlled and restricted their lives, but they have not been set free with the joy that could be theirs. 
But I have to also let you know that another perspective has been gaining a lot of momentum in recent years, and more and more Bible scholars are believing that this may also be a key to understanding this idea of being lukewarm. That it's not that hot is good and cold is bad, but they compare it to the drinking water situation in Laodicea at the time. And they say, if you think about the drinking temperature of water, everyone either prefers hot water or cold water. One of the grossest things is to reach for a cup and drink lukewarm water. I mean, the other day I played, or yesterday it was, we played tennis outside and it was just hot as the surface of the sun. And so a bunch of guys were playing. We, you know, there are bottles of water left out on the side by the courts. And you're just playing. And you, you work up a sweat. You're so thirsty. And then you reach for that cold refreshment. And you drink it. And it's just tepid, warm, flat water. Do you ever have that experience where you're so thirsty? and you, It's like drinking a bottle of saliva. You know what I mean? Yeah, how's that for a graphic image? Look, look. Oh, that's saliva. Just room temperature. Flat. When you want to drink water, think about it. Most of the time, you either want hot water or ice-cold water. And here's why this view of things is gaining so much momentum. Because if you, if you look at the history of the situation, Laodicea was part of a tri-city formation, a three-city league in the Lycus Valley. The other two cities were Colossae and Hierapolis. Hierapolis was very famous for its hot springs, these these um, streams of, of boiling hot water that would come out of the ground to form pools. They were filled with minerals, and people attributed all kinds of healing properties. This place is on my bucket list of places to visit before I die. I've got to see this place. These hot springs still exist to this day. They're some of the most amazing-looking, beautiful, natural wonders of the world. Let me show you some pictures. These are the hot springs at Heropolis. It's like a series of terraced infinity pools. And they're huge. Uh, just give you a sense of scale. That little bush right there would probably be taller than me. So they're large. Each one of these is the size of a swimming pool. And people just sit in them and soak in all the healing goodness of this natural mineral-laden hot water. So he's saying... Look at your sister city, Hierapolis. There are people flock from miles away. For thousands of years, they've been bathing in these hot springs and saying this hot water is so soothing. When you go into a bath, do you love going into a room temperature bath? Ah, it's so like room temperature. I just feel wetter. That's all. Right? No new sensation, just wetter. You want a steaming, piping hot bath, and it just soaks into your bones. So hot water has tremendous value. When your throat is sore, what feels better than hot water with a little lemon and honey? And according to Pastor Matt Swain, a little bit of whiskey in there, too. It's an old Spanish recipe for getting rid of a cold. I haven't tried it, you know, because I'm a man of the cloth. But <clears throat> Do you know what I'm talking about? When you, you have a sore throat, there's pain or aches. Hot water is what we long for. But when you're hot and dry and thirsty, what's better than an ice-cold glass of water? Just the glass is all sweaty and condensation is forming. Look, 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 look. And you get brain freeze and you shiver a little. And it's the greatest thing. 
And so cold water is what Colossae was known for, the other sister city. It had one of the coldest naturally occurring mountain streams in the area. And people flocked to Colossae to have a taste of this cold spring water, the kind of stuff that people today bottle and sell for $8 a bottle, right? They had it for free just in the river, and they would come and get it. And everyone knew that you come to Colossae, and you're going to get an incredibly good, clean-tasting cup of cold water. And think about it, right? Cold water is huge because this is in the days before electricity. There is no refrigeration. And to just get this cold cup of water was an amazing experience. And as I think about it, in their Tri-City League, they have two examples of water that are very different but equally appealing for their own reasons. Hot water is healing and soothing. Cold water is refreshing and delicious. And, and what many of these scholars are saying is Jesus would rather they were one or the other, but such as it is, they are about as useful as lukewarm water. Now, there's a further little wrinkle to this. Laodicea was a fabulously wealthy city. Out of those three cities, they were far and away the baller city. They were the richest in the area. But the one thing they couldn't buy was a natural water source. Hierapolis and Colossae were second cities, but they at least had these famous sources of water. So the folks in Laodicea, in order to get any water at all, they had to make a contract with the people in Hierapolis that were just a little bit closer. And so from six miles away, they would take the runoff from these hot springs, mineral-laden water. Just, you know, have you ever gone to a retreat center? and try to drink the tap water, and you're like, Bleh! it's like rotten eggs. You know that, that really eggy, sort of sulfury water? It's like that. And when it came out of the ground in Hierapolis and started coming down the pipes of the underground aqueduct, it was at about 95 degrees. Okay, 95. That's almost the temperature inside of you. Okay, that's how hot it was. It would flow down these pipes in an underground aqueduct, but by the time six miles away it had reached Laodicea, it hadn't sufficiently cooled off yet. It was no longer 95 degrees, but instead it was about the temperature and consistency of a stream of saliva. Not only that, can you show that picture again on the slide? See all that white stuff? It looks like ice or sand. It's actually years and years of accumulated mineral deposits. That's what that is. It looks like ice, but in fact it's hot as the desert out there, and that's just mineral deposits. And a lot of those minerals didn't leach out into the, in, into the surrounding landscape, but stayed in the water. So by the time the water reached Laodicea, it was both gross-tasting and tepid and flat and lukewarm. And everybody in Laodicea knew, as much as they wanted to boast about their city, the one thing they could never brag about was their horrible, horrible water. Now here's the thing. The locals got used to it. I mean, locals get used to everything, right? There, there were people who lived by paper factories, and the, you know, paper factories smell like an animal's bowels exploded. Okay? I, I don't know if you've ever been near a paper factory. Horrible. The worst smell. And, and everybody kind of doesn't like it, but after all, you get used to it. Have you ever, how many of you grew up on a farm? Okay. I don't think I'll ever get used to the smell of farms. I, I mean, I try to be all like, yeah, it's an earthly good smell. And, 
But I just, I can't get used to it. It's the smell of animal dung, by and large, right? I mean, that's, that's, I, used, I went to University of Illinois, drove to the South Farms, and the smell of a farm is actually the smell of animal excrement. <laughs> and it's like you get used to it after a while, but everybody who comes into town goes, dude, what is that? Why does your campus smell like that? Well, the locals got used to this horrible water. They could stomach it. They were thirsty enough, they would drink it. But every visitor to town, the first thing they would ever comment when they entered Laodicea was, this is the worst water I've ever tasted. In fact, many of them wouldn't say anything. They'd drink it, and then they would vomit almost right away. That's how bad the water was. That word that Jesus says here, I am about to spit you out of my mouth, that word spit is the Greek word from which we get emesis, vomiting, nausea. He wasn't just going to go, that little polite sort of, feminine spit. He was going to just hurl it. And that's what visitors to Laodicea did when they tasted the water. They wanted something good and they'd chug it after a long hike in the desert and they would just puke it all right back up and say, what is this? And the Laodiceans would say, well, that's our water, of course. It's what we drink every day. And what Jesus was saying is, my experience, every time I see you, you, you kind of look like a nice, cool cup of water. But every time I chug it, it makes me want to throw up. There's just something so flat and lifeless about it. It holds so much promise from the outside, but when you taste it, there's just something dead and missing about it. And it makes me want to hurl when I taste it. I, I don't think... Maybe that's quite the language Jesus would have used, but it's close. He's saying, guys, the experience of drinking you is like the experience of drinking the foul water in your city as a visitor. So I have a question for you. It's a question I've been wrestling with in my own heart. Which are you right now? I mean, if we take hot and cold to mean hot is passionate and cold is numb, are you one of those two? Are you on fire for the Lord, or at least do you know that you're really far from him and that there's a distance to be covered, but you can walk there in his power? Or are you one of those people who's in this middle ground, kind of Christian enough? you're, You're beyond anybody's ability to really strongly criticize you. But in your heart of hearts, in the quiet of the night, you know that what you have is actually a very surface and empty Christianity. It is a part of your culture, perhaps a part of the way you see yourself. But it isn't the thing that makes your heart beat every day. It isn't that thing which tells you I'm alive. I'm not asking that to make you feel guilty or to judge. You don't need to look away or feel like I'm... That's not the point. I'm asking because I think it's important to confront the truth about our faith. To stop settling for something that we think is better than what it actually is. But for for today, on this occasion, to say, what exactly is this thing that I have with Christ? Are you either hot or are you cold or are you saliva? I had a hard time swallowing yesterday because I kept thinking about drinking a cup of saliva and I was gagging myself until I swallowed. But I hope that that visual reminds you how unpleasant it is when something's supposed to be hot or cold and what you get instead is flat and lukewarm. 
Now, where does this lukewarm faith come from? How does a person settle at neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm? Because that's an important question to chase down. And here's what Jesus says. It comes from becoming complacent. It's a habit of the human heart that after a while you train yourself to settle for things. In fact, after a while, that's what your heart craves. You know, do you remember when you were younger? Some of you are still there. And everything was just watch seventh graders play. They're not like, um, what would you like to do today? Oh, very good idea, dear chap. And they said, you watch seventh graders, it's all, ah! And they throw stuff, they sweat like crazy. There's no middle ground. You say to a seventh grader, hey, don't get too carried away. I don't want you all sweaty when we go home. Why waste your breath? From the very start, their very intention is to get as sweaty and gross as possible and expend every last bit of energy they have. Aren't you glad you're in the adult service? But there, there's something beautiful about that. That wild abandon of going, there's no limit. Just, ah! But after a while, we train our hearts to be okay with and even, in fact, to crave middle-of-the-road stagnancy. Because it's actually safe, we think. It's comfortable. It's reasonable. It doesn't invade me too much. I can put it in its place and manage it. Do you ever watch a seventh grader try really hard to control themselves? Be out on the basketball court, just, I'm just shooting free throws. You could see, if you feel the tension right under their skin, like, I am in hell. This is so hard. Everything in me wants to run, but I'm just sitting there. And you see that repression of a natural drive. Now watch a 40-year-old get on a basketball court. And you're like, come on, move a little. Pass me the ball. They're like, take it easy, man. I don't want to sweat, you know. I don't want to hurt anything. Ah, and they're doing a lot of this. Ah. And it's just so lame. And you realize you get to a place in your life where everything is like that for you. Let's not get carried away. Let's not go too far. Let's be reasonable here. This complacency in Laodicea came largely from their wealth. And it's not just the fact that they were wealthy, but it's what that wealth did to them. Jesus looked at them and said, you know why you're like this? Because you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need anything. Wealth in itself is not really the problem. It's the smug complacency and man-centered um, self-reliance, that, that kind of uh, man-centered security which wealth so often produces. Laodicea was so wealthy that in the year A.D. 60, a devastating earthquake flattened the entire city. Nothing left in the entire city but rubble. And because it was an important trade city in the region, Rome came in and the Caesar said, Hey, Laodiceans, we've got a bunch of money. Do you want some financial aid from the Roman Empire to rebuild their city? And the Laodiceans said, No, thanks. We're good. We're such ballers. The private citizens of this city pooled their wealth together and rebuilt the sucker. I want you to think about that for a minute. How rich do you have to be to turn down financial aid from the government. 
This is how proud they were. They could not even accept help from Rome, who everybody would like to stick it to. Yeah, we'll take your money, you losers. They wouldn't even take Roman money. And the crazy thing is, when the citizens pooled their money, they built a better city than the one they had. When you're rich, even an earthquake is an upgrade opportunity. It's good to be rich, I guess. And I don't think God has ever said being wealthy in itself is a sin. But when you can upgrade your city after an earthquake and you look around and go, look what we just did. This is our city right there. I built that gym right there. That's our family. And when you can say that, it produces a response in the human heart that is not always healthy. Uh, Let me put it this way. Most of us in this room, we have experienced probably both ends of financial security. At some point in your life, you may have really worried about money. And at another point in your life, you may have had enough money that you stop being in fear all the time. You could actually, doesn't it feel good to take out a checkbook and just pay? I know nobody likes paying bills, but if you have to pay them, doesn't it feel good when you can afford to pay them? And you're writing a check and you know that when they cash it, you're not going to get a phone call from the bank. It's a good feeling. There's a security in that. Now, I want you to think about it. If you graft your financial security and your spiritual aliveness, what would those graphs look like when superimposed on top of each other? I, I mean, be honest about that. Think about it. Because I know in my own testimony as a pastor, and I'm not going to be as wealthy as some of you will be in your life, but I have experienced life on both ends of that spectrum. And I can tell you that when I was young and poor and hungry, there was just something about my faith that was different. I can't quite explain it, but now I can handle most things life throws at me. It's because you guys take good care of our family. We're not poor. You don't, when you come over to the house, do you ever feel like you've got to bring food because we're starving? You know, I grew up, every time you went to the pastor's house, you bring a jar of kimchi because those people are starving to death. This is like your guilt offering. You know, here, here, we can't pay you much, so at least eat this pickled cabbage. Do you grow up like that? You guys don't have to do that for us because we're okay. But, you know, even as we enjoy some measure of financial security, I have to be honest with you. Not having to depend on God for everything has had an effect on my soul. I've flirted with that attitude from time to time. I've got everything I need. I'm okay. We'll make it. And that has an effect on our souls. And so if you've been blessed with wealth, be alert. Because you know what I believe? I believe that more Christians have been sunk by prosperity than by suffering. In fact, many are the stories of Christians who under great suffering and trial, their faith blossoms into something altogether new. They grow spiritually when they struggle. But I've watched so many Christians wither away because they succeeded in life. I think it takes greater spiritual strength to face plenty than it does to face scarcity. Do you realize you've got to be a tougher Christian to be rich than to be poor? 
And that's why I think it is a special calling. For those in our church who have been blessed with much, you got to know I pray rather often that God would preserve the heart he gave you for him in the midst of all of this money. And in many cases, what I see is a beautiful expression of that happening. We have it backwards so much of the time. We pray hardest when we're struggling, but I think we have to pray hardest when we're doing well. Because those are the times when our faith leaks out of us. Now, not only were they complacent, but they persisted in their complacency because they were also deluded. Oh, I'm sorry. Deluded. Not diluted, but deluded. Deluded means you have a very inaccurate picture of reality. It means you really believe one thing, but the truth is another thing altogether. The Christians in Laodicea saw themselves as wealthy and secure and beyond the need of anything. But Jesus said, what you do not realize is that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. They were the polar opposite of what they believed themselves to be. And that can be a shocking thing to realize. You know, when I lived in Waukegan, I was number two in my class at Warren Township High School. And I believed myself to be one of the smartest human beings currently occupying a spot in an American high school. I thought I was the stuff. And then my parents' second semester moved to Libertyville, a slightly different demographic. And I discovered just who I really was academically. It was one of the most humiliating experiences of my entire life. I went down two levels in math and got a D on my first test. I got my butt handed to me by the most average kids in that new school. And, you know, here's the thing. You see yourself a certain way and you walk about just totally convinced this is who you are. And then something happens and you realize just how short you come up. And it's a really sobering moment when that happens. If you are older than 35, one experience you're going to have again and again for the rest of your life is stuff you used to be able to lift. You'll be like, watch out, I'll get it. And you go, oh, shit. Let me just go get a younger stronger man to lift that i in my head i know i could do it but i'm not in the mood you know i slept wrong or something i you see yourself a certain way and then something happens and you realize you don't actually have what you thought you had has it ever happened to you and what jesus was saying was he wasn't trying to judge them or embarrass them, but he's saying, and I can't shake the comparison to this story. You know this story? Seventh graders, close your eyes. That's kind of PG-13, but... You know, the story of Hans Christian Andersen's The Emperor's New Clothes, it's such an interesting moral story because the guy's strutting around so proud of himself, and he's butt naked and embarrassing himself. And Hans Christian Andersen wrote that story to poke fun at the pomposity of those who are the elite of his society and couldn't see 
how shallow and empty their pursuits were. The things they so prided themselves on were an embarrassment in the grander scheme of life. They were naked and shameful and thought themselves to be arraigned in the finest clothing. And that's really, in a sense, the very story of Jesus' letter to the church in Laodicea. You feel you are in such good shape, so flush with everything you need, but I promise you that times are coming in this world and in your life where you will confront the harsh truth of how short you come up. Maybe you've handled everything so far, and that's why you still feel pretty good about things. But life has a way of handing you the truth. And it can be very sobering to realize that what you thought you can afford, you really can't. So Jesus says to them, I counsel you. He doesn't command them, but he says, you're going to have to choose this. I urge you, I counsel you. Buy from me. Now, why does he use that language? Because the way of life in Laodicea is what you need, you buy. It's the same spirit that runs throughout the air in Costco. You watch people and they just, this is sort of like, they don't even look at the price. They just go, let's get that and let's get that. And they load up their carts and walk out and feel so good to just have so much stuff. I can have 8,000 bouts of dysentery and I have enough you know, towelage to wipe myself. I'm set for life with toilet paper. And you just, you have this attitude in that store of like, let's just load up on everything. And it feels so good, doesn't it? To shop when you have money. Some people are like, I'm still waiting to experience that. But when you have a little money, it feels good to go to a store and just go, that looks yummy. I would like to try that. Oh, this is soft. I'm going to get three of those and five for my friends. And it feels good. The way they approached life was what you want or need, just buy it. They acquired everything they had. It was outside, they brought it in. And so Jesus says, I understand that's how you live. The problem is not that you acquire things, but that you go to the wrong store. You've gone out and acquired everything you think you need, but all the stuff you've acquired isn't enough for what life's going to throw at you. So he uses imagery that they would identify. He says, come buy from me gold, come buy from me clothes, and come buy from me salve to put on your eyes. This is where a little history background can really open our understanding. Laodicea was a major banking center. Everybody stopped there to cash their paychecks. They were flush with gold. And so they felt pretty secure. But here's the thing. There are some things in this world that money cannot help you with. You know, in the last five years, I've, for some reason, begun reading a lot of post-apocalyptic fiction. Um, After a nuclear war, after some devastating virus, after a vampire epidemic, after the zombie apocalypse. And you know why I'm so fascinated by these books? Because they show what life will be like when the rules of society in one day get flipped totally upside down. There was one book I read where a guy was fabulously wealthy, and the last thing he grabbed out of his house was a duffel bag full of $100 bills. Talk about a dummy. The whole world is changing. What are you going to do with $100? So the funny part is this is his his precious, you know, golems, my precious. He's got this duffel, and he holds it very close to him, 
But at some point he realizes, what is this? And he keeps trying to buy favors from people. I'll give you $1,000 for that loaf of bread. And the guy goes, can I eat that $1,000? No, then keep your paper. And at the end, he burns half of it for warmth. He uses some of it to clean himself after he goes to the bathroom. Money can get you a lot. Let's not kid ourselves. If I had to make the choice, I would prefer to have enough money than no money. But everybody's life will encounter something where you'll realize money is no help to me here. This is not a buying situation. This is not the kind of thing where having enough money will get me to the other side of the tunnel. In fact, in this situation, my wealth is totally irrelevant. Your teenage daughter runs away from home, refuses to return. Your spouse tells you they're not in love anymore. Your doctor tells you you have an incurable terminal illness. Someone tells you your loved one was killed in an automobile accident. And in those moments, will you say, oh, that's okay, I'm rich. Do you see how ludicrous that sounds? Oh, no, no, don't worry about it. I am loaded. What store do you go to buy a new body, a new marriage, a new child? Where do you go to bring dead people back to life for a million dollars? And what he's saying is, buy from me not just gold to buy stuff, but life is going to require of you that you have more than just money. Come buy from me real gold, spiritual wealth, so that when life gets hard, you won't find yourself broke. And I believe that's a word that some in our church really, God wants you to hear that. Because I think those days are heading your way. Laodicea was also famous for his black wool. And this wasn't just dark wool. There were black sheep all over the world. But something about the minerals in the water that these sheep were drinking caused their wool to be like jet black. Right? Like the color of a 15-year-old Korean girl's hair before she gets highlights. You know, that black, that raven black. Black. Or the color of your dad's hair after he dyes it. You know, it's almost unnaturally like, dad, that looks... You look like one of the, the Adams family, dude. You got to stop. That color of black. And because it was so rare, I don't know what it is, but when something is rare, it gets expensive. Not that it's inherently better. It's just rare. And so nobody else can have it. And so this, this wool made the Laodicean merchants extremely famous and wealthy. Everybody wanted it. And the clothing that was made from this black wool was the envy of everyone. They would have fashion shows where everyone walking down the runway had something made of Laodicean black wool. You know, they walked down. And you, you know, you'd get that whole thing going, the whole industry. Can I ask you something? Doesn't it feel really good when you go to the store and buy a snazzy outfit and it fits just right, it flatters all the right parts? You're just like, you know, even if you're like a, a 45-year-old man like me, when you buy some new clothes and they look good on you and you're just like, oh, yeah. And you walk around feeling so good about yourself, don't you? That first day of school, guys, when you, your parents buy you new clothes and you got that one thing you love wearing and every time you wear it, everyone compliments you. Ooh, that's a really good color on you. 
wow, you look good in that. And you just beam, don't you? Am I the only one? You guys, you guys like getting new clothes? Feeling good about yourself? There's no reason not to feel good about it. Don't, don't, don't worry. I'm not the punchline. Is in, Sinners, how could you feel good about something super? Wearing new clothes feels good. But here's the truth that Jesus is trying to expose. Clothing's nice. Because it sends a message about us before anyone even talks to us. Dang, you fine. And that stuff looks really expensive. You're fine and you're a baller. You're, you're, you're rich and good looking. And you have good taste. Clothing covers a lot about us. That's why we don't really like the locker room where everything is just us minus the coverings. <laughs> here I am. This is me right here. This is the real, this is it. You don't know who's poor, who's rich, who's whatever. And what he's saying is every one of us has things inside of us we're always trying to cover. All these external things are meant to shield everyone's view, distract them from some things we really know about ourselves. It's what we would call the naked truth. Who you really know you are no matter what others think of you. You read the autobiography of these tech nerds who become billionaires and they surround themselves with party people and they're on a hundred foot yacht. But in their confessionals, they say, I never stop feeling out of place in my own life. I'm still the nerd. I know all these people. If I weren't this guy with this ball or money, they wouldn't be on my boat. They'd be making fun of me. The way you see yourself, the naked truth about you doesn't go away because you cover it with external things. And that's the mission of our life, if you think about it. We're always trying to figure out how to deal with what we know about ourselves, the real naked truth. And Jesus says, I have a garment for you that will cover everything. Doesn't matter what condition you come to me, when I clothe you, you will feel covered. Your shame will be banished your sense of inadequacy, your insecurities, your fears will melt, and you can finally be comfortable in your own skin because I will actually give you garments that cover you. You no longer have to be enslaved to the body image cues of our society. You don't have to worry that you pulled into the place in a beater car. You can be okay with who you are because I will clothe your shame. Wouldn't you rather have that than fine raiments? You know, lastly, there was a medical school just outside of Laodicea. It was associated with the temple of Menkaru, which was a local Phrygian god, a deity. And the thing that this medical school is best known for, where, where is Dr. Ed Sung? Where are you? You, you would have liked Laodicea. They had the greatest school of ophthalmology in the ancient Near East. And they had developed a special medicine that was like a cure-all for all kinds of ancient eye sicknesses. And they called it Phrygian powder. And when you mix it in the right concentration with water, it would turn into a salve that when you put it on eyes, like a miracle cure, and people with eye diseases would come from miles and miles away to get some of this Phrygian powder. You couldn't see clearly. You go to Laodicea. They put that junk in your eye, and bam, you see. 
And sight's pretty important, especially in the ancient world, where without sight, you're going to be poor and pitiful. Seeing clearly matters. And what he's saying is, you think you see everything. And at one level, the Laodiceans saw a lot. They were sharp people. They had street smarts. They went out and played the game of the world and won, and they had acquired great wealth doing it. These were not dummies. Put them in the right setting. They can navigate the system and win every single time. So they weren't blind in the sense that they were foolish and ignorant and stupid, but in some sense they were totally blind. And I don't know if this describes you or if you've met people like this, but you get them in a financial or medical or academic situation, they know their way around left and right. I'm amazed when I, when I see business people talk about a business situation and I've read it completely wrong. I'm like, I, I would totally sell the company. They're like, you're stupid. This is when you buy that company. And they explain the whole thing. I'm like, wow. You see stuff I don't see. But you take that same person and throw a curveball in life. Some emotional or spiritual or existential issue, and suddenly that same person is just floundering in darkness. They're so thrown off course by this thing that happened to them. And I've had so many conversations like that with people. In other areas of life, they are so sharp, so brilliant. But in spiritual matters, they're like blind people stumbling about even the simplest thing they cannot see. And what Jesus is saying is, it's okay to be smart and to be full of sight in one thing. But it's a tragedy to be so blind in the sight that matters most. Because everybody, when they die, goes to the afterlife broke. Do you know... That when you die, you will be broke. Someone else will have everything you work for. And unless the mortician clothes you, you go to the grave naked. You leave it all. But you leave it all to enter a reality that many of us will have neglected most of our earthly lives. The question is, which sight do you value more? The ability to see the world clearly or the ability to see the spiritual realm clearly. And if you've got to be wise in one or the other, where do you want to be blind and where do you want to be sighted? As we wrap up this series on the letters to the seven churches, I think it's good that we end with the church in Laodicea because I think that more than any of the preceding churches, the church at Laodicea captures the spirit of the church in the Western world. I think we've become theologically pretty sophisticated. When Rob Bell started saying weird stuff about hell not existing and everyone's going to make it eventually, the rest of the evangelical world ganged up on him, punched him down and said, Stop it! I feel like we've become a little better at guarding against heresy, doctrinal error, I feel like false teachers have a much harder time today than they did in the past. I even think most of us toe a pretty narrow line regarding our moral standards. And at least we know to feel ashamed when we break the rules. But if there's anything that's going to sink the church in the West, I think it is this. It's going to be lukewarmness 
It's going to be settling for being just Christian enough. And I want to challenge all of us here. Is that your aim, is to be Christian enough that people cannot legitimately criticize you, but not Christian enough that you get carried away with it? I don't think Jesus ever described a Christianity like that. In fact, Christianity is not something you see on a gradient. There is either faith in Christ that's alive, or there is no faith in Christ. This weird, lukewarm middle thing that everybody tries to settle at does not exist in the eyes of Jesus. To him, that's the same as not having faith. To him, it's something he spits out of his mouth. And so I want to exhort you in the authority and the love of Jesus. Do not do something that's middle of the road, lame, mediocre, uncourageous, and unfulfilling, and say that what you're doing is Christianity. Hear the word of Christ himself who defines for us what it is to follow him. And understand that the only true faith is a faith that is alive. There is no lukewarm Christianity that Jesus recognizes and accepts. And as you think about the way you've chosen to walk with him, I hope that this will give you some strong inner challenge to consider the way you've decided to follow him. You know, somebody once told me about my preaching style that every once in a while I should just give the church a break and not push so hard. Just preach a message that, you know, like encourages people and makes them feel good about life. And I, I've, I've tried a couple times. But what I realized was I really only have one job. And that is in a culture that keeps trying to shut Jesus' mouth. My one job is I can't shut up. I just got to keep saying to everybody, hey, Jesus. And I think that's what we're all after, too, is we come here to remember him. Because it's so easy to forget out there. It's my real hope for all of us together, myself included, my own family, my children, that we would never try to pass off lukewarm Christianity as the true Christian faith. But we would acknowledge openly just what an affront that is to the heart of Christ. And we would set the bar higher, and we would trust him to take us to that higher place. I invite you to just bow with me in prayer. I think the thing about being lukewarm is that if you are that, it's not always easy to spot it or to acknowledge it. And I think it's partly because lukewarm Christianity has actually become the majority expression of Christianity in our country. And no one will hassle you as long as you're Christian enough. Am I right? And because it's become so commonplace, we're not always alerted to the fact that what we're doing, what we're, the way we're living, is not actually the Christian faith which Jesus invited us into. 
In fact, one preacher said, I think very wisely, that what we've invented in America is a whole new religion and we're calling it Christianity. It's not the Christianity of history. It's not the Christianity of the Bible. It's the Christianity of the United States of America. And it is not, in fact, biblical Christianity. So, really, if this is what marks your life, you can't wait for human voices to tell you that because human voices won't say it in this country. But is it possible that the voice of God is saying that to you this morning? Now, don't hear it the wrong way. Don't hear, I've got to be a better Christian. Please don't hear that. But hear this. Is it possible you've settled for something that has no real power and you're missing out on something amazing? And that's the reason you're so bored. That's the reason you struggle with the decision whether you'll come or not on Sundays. That's why you fall asleep at every sermon. You're sitting right on top of something so powerful and you have yet to experience its power. That's the bondage of lukewarm Christianity. So I'm going to invite you now to just sit and think in the presence of God. And if he prompts you to respond in some way, would you do that right now? Let's pray together. Lord, for most of us in the last several years, we've grown in something. We've grown more competent. We've grown more wealthy, more fit more something. But perhaps it's the case that for some of us, maybe many of us, we have not really grown that much as a redeemed follower of Jesus Christ. If in any way we have fallen asleep in the light, if in any way we have become neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm. Then Jesus, turn our hearts to you to buy from you gold refined in the fire, white garments that cover our nakedness and shame, and salve that will open up the blindness of our eyes to see. May it never be said of us at harvest that we were just Christian enough but that we loved you and followed you and knew you with our whole beings. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.